from The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll ask the question, what happened to Sandra Bland? Debbie Nathan has done some wonderful reporting for The Nation about this. She says that to answer that question, you must begin way before Sandra Bland died in a Texas jail. We'll have her report later in the show. And we start today with a different question. What are the prospects for a fundamental realignment of American politics? For some answers, we turn to Rick Perlstein. He's the author of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan. That was a fundamental realignment of American politics. And it's a terrific book about America from 1973 to 76. He's written lots of other books. He's also written for The Nation, The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, and also notably TheNewYorker.com. Last time we talked with him, he had just come back from covering the New Hampshire primary. That was the beginning of the primary season. Now that it's close to the end, we're coming back to him. We reached him today at home in Chicago. Rick Perlstein, welcome back. Hi, John. Good to be here. On the Democratic side, it seems like the prospects for a fundamental realignment of American politics are pretty much non-existent. Is, is that right? Well, especially with uh, the approaching you know, mathematical impossibility of uh, Bernie Sanders getting the nomination. But as, as I pointed out in one of my Washington Spectator articles, uh, even if he did... The way I described it is he would enter the, the White House uh, naked and alone. He, he just does not have a coalition of support uh, on Capitol Hill uh, in the bureaucracies of Washington. And, you know, democracy, democratic transformation is a team sport. The, the, the pump is not primed for it. And, of course, uh, Secretary Clinton is never more adamant uh, or acerbic than when she's kind of poo-pooing the idea of fundamental transformation. She's almost running as the anti-transformative candidate, uh, the candidate of competent administration, which isn't, you know, nothing, but it's not fundamental transformation. And as you point out uh, in The Nation magazine, she's been endorsed by, what is it, 15 out of 18 sitting Democratic governors, four, et cetera, et cetera, 40 yeah. out of 44 senators, to the extent that there is a Democratic Party structure, she is at the top of it. Right. She is the establishment candidate, despite her protestations that a woman can't be an establishment candidate. Now we get to talk about the Republicans. You speak of Ted Cruz's creepy extremism, but but isn't that a, a familiar kind of creepy extremism? Very, very creepy uh, and very familiar. Uh, the way I describe Ted Cruz is he was bred in a conservative movement petri dish. I mean, he kind of checks off all the boxes. He comes from an evangelical background. You know, he memorized the Constitution. You know, he learned how to debate all these things. He was um, described by Jeffrey Tubin in a New Yorker profile as basically the solicitor general for all of Red America when he held that job in Texas. He was the guy who was uh, arguing on behalf of uh, basically every Republican governor in America when he would uh, argue Supreme Court cases. He is conservatism incarnate as it has come to us uh, through a direct, direct line of filial descent from uh, Goldwater and Buckley through Reagan, through uh, you know Alito and uh, all the rest. Our, our opening question, let me remind you, was what are the prospects for a fundamental realignment right. of American politics? Uh, here with the other guy, we're getting to a, a different kind of territory. 
Right. If a fundamental realignment of American politics comes in 2017, it will come in the person of Donald Trump. And I think not in any way that any of us could welcome. I'm not even sure his supporters will welcome it. I think he will open a Pandora's box that, uh, as president, that would really threaten to undo Madisonian constitutionalism, as we understand it. Why, why do you uh, say his supporters wouldn't welcome it once he became president? Well, first of all, he can't uh, deliver on his uh, promises. <laughs> uh, Good point. You know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of the kind of alienation and free-floating rage that he is feeding upon is based on the increasingly extravagant promises that the conservative movement and the Republican Party has made to their base. You know, repealing Obamacare, you know, sort of reversing the demographic demographic trends in the nations, you know, ending immigration, crushing the Kenyan usurper and all the rest. In the first 100 days. Right. And any more than Donald Trump can, you know, build a 50-foot wall and get Mexico to pay for it and somehow simultaneously um, be an anti-interventionist, you know, and steal all of ISIS's oil. You know, these are all uh, impossibilities. But they are very salient and powerful uh, tropes when it comes to assembling an authoritarian base from which to govern, which is radically personalist. And by radically personalist, uh, what I mean is the idea of a constitution, I call it a machine for governing without guns. It's basically the idea that a government of law is not men. And everything that Donald Trump says is all about me, me, me. When he says, um, he says, literally, I alone will uh, defeat ISIS. And, you know, our constitution is not about I alone. It's about institutions. It's about uh, checks and balances. And, you know, I don't think I need to you know, tell any nation reader that uh, General Trump is an authoritarian uh, megalomaniac. I mean, he, he was asked recently what kind of Supreme Court justices he would pick. And he said, he said, I'd probably appoint people who would look very seriously at Hillary Clinton's email disaster because it's a criminal activity. Now, what's so fascinating about that is he's basically uh, saying that his litmus test for the Supreme Court would be someone who would be willing to carry out his vendetta against a political rival, right? And then another thing is he just instinctually, without a second thought, you know, prejudices uh, what he sees as a criminal proceeding, which I don't know if you remember this, John, you might, but when Richard Nixon uh, kind of implied that he thought Charles Manson was guilty of all people, that became a huge national scandal. Because, you know, in our Constitution, you are uh, guaranteed a trial uh, by uh, a jury of your peers and uh, due process and all the rest. And when uh, a president or even a presidential candidate puts his thumb on the scales like that, you're saying, I don't care about that. I don't care about the Constitution, that the state is an inch of my will, that basically he's uh, reiterating the, uh, you know, the imperishable formulation of Louis XIV, le temps c'est moi. I am the state. I am the law. Donald Trump opened his California campaign with a giant rally in Orange County at the fairgrounds in Costa Mesa. 8,000 people showed up. Orange County, of course, is the bedrock of the Goldwater movement in 1964 that challenged the Republican Party establishment that year and succeeded. I'm sure Trump knows that. There's there's a terrific book about the Goldwater campaign. (laughs) It's called Before the Storm. You wrote it, Rick Perlstein. It won some big prizes. I, I looked up your chapter on the California primary of 1964. Mm-hmm. Yes. You wrote that Goldwater's 
appearances in California were festivals, huge crowds, organized cheering. And then the climb at the climax, the candidate would finally appear. Here, there's a divergence between the Goldwater rallies in Orange County and Trump. You know, they would chant his name and demand he go to the stage. And when he did, he would simply just pour cold water on the whole thing. He was a very reluctant candidate. He was uncomfortable with the veneration. Uh, They loved him anyway, of course. He won that primary. But, of course, Donald Trump, uh, you know, needs uh, the crowd's veneration like a bee needs honey. Uh, There are a couple of other differences, too, of course. The Goldwater movement had a big grassroots organization, especially in in Orange County, and it it was also very big on ideas. They read Goldwater's book. They read the National Review. (laughs) Some did, some didn't. Uh, I'm sure some of them just liked the fact that he uh, voted against the Civil Rights Act and, you know, uh, talked about getting rid of Social Security. But certainly there was uh, a little bit more rationation in the Goldwater movement than there is in Trump's. I mean, Ted Cruz just had a toe-to-toe debate with this Donald Trump supporter and his his friends, and the Trump supporters just started yelling at him, uh, you know, go back to Canada and build the wall. And, uh, and here's Ted Cruz, you know, doing his, you know, basically his, uh, you know, Federalist Society debating routine. It was uh, one of the comical moments of the campaign. Yeah, they're they're with they're with uh, Carly Farina's uh, pratfall. Right there, there are two movements that uh, will probably history history will remember, uh, along with uh, basketball ring is the Ted Cruz campaign in, in a nutshell. And what they symbolize is, I think, the exhaustion of the political appeal of an older conservative movement in the Republican Party is in favor of something that more closely resembles uh, what we know as uh, by the name fascism. The polls and the betting odds tell us that Hillary Clinton will be elected in November and Donald Trump will be defeated. Of course, that will be very good news for us. But but what about the millions of followers of Trump? Will they say they lost fair and square to Hillary and go home quietly? Well, they may well end up becoming a, a vessel for a fundamental transformation in American politics, too, because... They will believe, uh, because they've been primed to believe by this megalomaniac that they follow, uh, that they've been robbed of their democratic birthright. And uh, I uh, certainly would not rule out the possibility of violence in the streets. And uh, that's something uh, that we really don't have a script for in this country. Rick Perlstein, readamitthenation.com. Rick, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Cheers. It's been almost a year since Sandra Bland died in a Texas jail after spending three days there. She was only 28. What happened to Sandra Bland? Debbie Nathan has some answers. Her powerful and moving report is the cover story in the current issue of The Nation magazine. Debbie Nathan reports on immigration, race, and sexual politics. She's covered Texas for many years, including her work for This American Life, the greatest show on radio, where she did a terrific piece on those inland border patrol checkpoints on highways in the Southwest. We reached her today in New York City. Debbie Nathan, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. When Sandra Bland died, she left behind more than two dozen videos posted on her Facebook page. She called them Sandy Speaks. Tell us about Sandy Speaks. 
Well, Sandy was speaking through her smartphone videos. Uh, she used to get into her car when she went out for lunch from her work, and she would talk about things that she was thinking about. And during the months when she was doing these videos, she was mostly thinking about the same issues that Black Lives Matter is thinking about. But I want to say also that she had more than videos. Um, sometimes more than once a day she would post, you know, the way people do on Facebook. She put these videos on Facebook, but she also had postings where she linked to articles and she just kind of talked the way people do and those are also equally interesting very few people have read them and um, in those in those uh, postings she often really implied things about her life that even went beyond sometimes what she had on the videos and there was that greeting that she opened her posts with she did she would say Good morning, my beautiful kings and queens, or good afternoon, my beautiful kings and queens. And I think that that phrase actually sort of comes out of a maybe a black nationalist cultural tradition. I'm not sure. But Sandy's genius was that she said that about all of us. We were all her kings and queens, and I'm white. She was a very ecumenical person. So Sandra Bland, we're calling her Sandy, is that right? That's what she called herself. That's what everyone who knew her called her. So I guess I am doing it myself. Okay, I'll join you. Sandy went to a mostly white high school, I learned from your piece in The Nation, in suburban Chicago. Sounds like she was great in high school. She was. She was a very good student. She was an honor student. Um, She joined just about every club that there was. Uh, She was much beloved. Um, by students and by her teachers, even some of the teachers who were not so used to um, maybe a style of, you know, she was a very opinionated, feisty young woman, and there were very few blacks at the school. So I think that she navigated being black at a practically all-white school in a very brilliant way. And your report, she was the only black cheerleader, and she played trombone in the band. Yeah, she was actually, I think, in the orchestra. Um, I, I think there was like an orchestra that had trombones in it. So, um, you know, she just sort of went across all kinds of boundaries. And for college, she got a music scholarship to Prairie View A&M University, which I understand is near Houston, a historically black school. Sounds like she was great in college. She was. She majored in animal science, which might sound a little unusual because she was a big city girl. But um, Prairie View is an A&M in the same way that the big, there's a big agricultural and mechanical college in Texas that everyone knows about, A&M. Prairie View was the black A&M. Prairie View was founded when black people were not allowed to go to white colleges. It's a post-Civil War black college. So, you know, there's like this big agricultural component there. And um, she got interested in animal science. And she told many people that she wanted to be an FDA inspector. Then she graduated in 2009 and, and started looking for a job. 2009, that was right after the economic collapse of fall 2008. What was it like for a black 22-year-old looking for a job in 2009? It was terrible. It was just, you know, black, young black graduates, BAs, were many times more likely to be unemployed than um, white graduates. And I think we all remember young people during that period unable to get jobs. I think they were sort of the blood of Occupy Wall Street. Women, black women, had it even worse. They had it worse than black men. Um, 
a, a white high school female graduate during the last few years has had a better chance of getting a job than a young black woman with a BA degree. And it hasn't really gotten any better for young black women as it has for just about every other population as the economy has improved. And then Sandy Bland started getting stopped for traffic violations. We know something about this system of expensive traffic tickets from Ferguson. What what was her experience? Yeah, Texas is similar to Ferguson, except it's an entire state. There's no income tax in Texas. And so a lot of municipalities and the state itself raise money by putting all kinds of um, charges onto traffic tickets. And I mean, they're just every charge you can imagine. You know, there's charges for treating sick people. There are charges for um, having increased surveillance at the border. There are charges, all kinds of things. Um, So that creates this great incentive to stop people and to ticket them. And she was constantly being ticketed. This is a huge issue in Texas. And black people are stopped and ticketed more often than white people. All the statistics show that. So she was stopped quite a bit, but actually I interviewed friends of hers who had the same experience. It's a very common experience in Texas. And how much money did she end up owing on her traffic tickets? Well, you know, funny that you should ask that because I think everybody wants to focus on Texas. She owed several hundred dollars in Texas, but later, I just have to say this, she went back to Illinois And it was even worse in Illinois because Illinois does the same thing. In fact, lots of municipalities collect money from traffic tickets to put in their general fund. So not only did she have hundreds of dollars in Texas in traffic tickets, but when she went to Illinois, she had thousands of dollars. Again, the same thing in Illinois. All of the Department of Transportation statistics show that black people, particularly in the county, the suburban county where she was, are many times more likely to be ticketed than white people. I learned from your piece that in, in Texas, or at least in, in Houston, if you can't pay your traffic tickets, you go to jail. And Sandy Bland went to jail for how long? Well, she was in jail sitting down, I think they call it sitting down her traffic tickets or sitting out her traffic tickets for about three days because she was in a county where she got $100 a day to do that. There are other counties where you only get $50 a day. And that, again, that's like sort of the the work of poor people is to be in jail paying their traffic tickets sitting there. This was the Harris County Jail in Texas, county jails are usually horrible places. What's what's the Harris County Jail like? Yeah, that's Houston. Um, it's the big jail in Houston, and it's got, I don't know, 9,000 people in it on any given day. And it's really, really a bad place. It's been investigated in the last five years or so, which would have been the time she was there by the DOJ. And they found that, you know, it's a violent place. Um, it's a neglectful place. It's a filthy place. It's like physically filthy so, you know, it must have been a very, very unpleasant experience for this middle-class girl, particularly, to be sitting in that jail. Some of the traffic stops also led to marijuana charges. That's right. Um, also in Texas, and particularly in Harris County, which is Houston, uh, black people, even though they have pretty much the same rate of smoking weed as everybody else in the United States, are far more prone to be stopped And she was stopped on traffic tickets. And then there was one time when after her car was impounded, actually, um, it was a DUI. She was coming back from a party. She had a little too much to drink. They impounded her car. And while they were impounding it, they saw a little baggie with just a tiny, tiny bit of marijuana in it, like 
in New York, you might get a fine or maybe not even. Um, in most states, you're not going to have too much happen to you. But Texas is very harsh. And um, she was slapped with a misdemeanor charge and she spent 30 days locked up. So when she got out of jail in Texas, she went back to Illinois. And what happened there? She had the same problem. She could not get a good job. She was working all the time, but she was just working temporary and she was working at places like McDonald's. She was having the same problems with being stopped and ticketed. And um, she did have a um, godmother who was very supportive of her and who apparently she had an easy time speaking with, um, more than she did maybe with her family. And her godmother, uh, unfortunately, got sick with cancer, and she died. And I think that that was probably Sandy's real support, and her, her godmother died. And clearly that was traumatic for her. And somewhere in there, Sandy also had a miscarriage, is that right? She, according to some records that have emerged, she reported to a doctor that she'd had what's called an ectopic pregnancy. It's not a miscarriage. It's much more traumatic physically than a miscarriage. She had a pregnancy, she reported, that lands instead of in your uterus in your fallopian tubes, and it can't go anywhere there except to kill you if the embryo is not removed surgically. It's a very dangerous condition. So that was another traumatic event for her. And she told people around this time that she was depressed. What do we know about that? She had a friend who I spoke with who told me that she did mention this to him. And he was a little bit taken aback because he told me that this is not really talked about in African-American culture and it's not really dealt with, you know, in the way of saying, oh, you should go get therapy. If you read her, her Facebook and if you watch those videos, she was speaking about depression. She was speaking about her depression she had a couple videos where she told her listeners that she was depressed. And she said, this is a very big problem in black culture. We don't talk about this and we really need to. It's a very serious problem. She um, linked in her Facebook postings to articles that were emerging from what, they, from what are called womanist psychotherapists, um, black feminists who are dealing with women's issues in therapy and mental health, you know, really discussing this problem, the fact that more black people than white people are suffering from depression and women have it worse and women are, you know, their, their um, level of treatment is just, they're not getting treatment, partly because they can't afford it, health insurance is still not adequate, and partly because the culture um, really mitigates against it, as I've said, against um, defining it this way and getting treatment. And she posted about that more than once. So it's very sad that you don't see a response to these videos or to these posts on her Facebook page. You don't see people saying, oh, what can I do to help? Let me refer you to my therapist. You know, there's nothing like that. It's like everyone is pretty interested in responding to her posts about police violence, you know, against black people. But when it comes to her discussing her own problems, there's a kind of silence. It's as though... She's not speaking. It's almost like people aren't hearing. She's trying to speak, but people are not hearing. She's served time in jail. She's depressed. She's lost her godmother. And she applies for a job back at Prairie View in Houston, her old school. What happens then? 
she applied for a job and she got a call or a communication from Prairie Review and they said, we'd like to interview you tomorrow. She just got in her car, put some clothes in the back seat, and she left. She didn't know whether she'd have a job or not, but she went to the interview. She had actually applied for three jobs. And um, one of those jobs was really up her alley. It was a professional job for somebody with a BA, and it had to do with agriculture. One of the jobs was just a low-paying clerical job that was only going to last for a few weeks. So she interviewed for these various jobs, and she was hired for the clerical job. It, it was a very, you know, a very tenuous situation. It was only going to last, like I said, you know, for less than a month and it wasn't going to pay very much. But I think I can, you know, I think it's easy to remember that feeling when you're that age. Like I've got to get out of here. I've got to go someplace that I love. I've got to try to make a new life for myself. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but like somehow I'll just try to make it work. She went down and had, you know, she got the interview. She got tentatively hired, but Prairie View is actually a very strict place and a conservative place when it comes to the box. Sandy was a victim of the box. She had numerous misdemeanors, and it's clear from her Facebook that um, that it hounded her when she applied for jobs, that she had to tell her uh, when she applied that she had a uh, record. And she got a letter with her hire letter. It was a tentative hire letter saying, now we have to check your background, to do a background check. And if we find that you have a current criminal record, we can rescind this offer. And so that's the situation that she was in when she was brutalized by Brian Incendia, the state trooper. So the same day that she signed the papers for this new job offer, she got pulled over again by the police in another traffic stop. Tell us about that. She was turning in her car outside of the campus onto a main road that goes through this town. And there was a a trooper behind her, a state trooper. And um, he apparently speeded up and she interpreted that as some kind of an emergency move that he was trying to go chase somebody ahead of her, she said. And so without signaling, she went into the right lane. She changed lanes. And then he stopped her because she had changed lanes. And I mean, in a way, like being from Texas myself and actually being from that part of Texas, I I almost think she was sort of like the Emmett Till of this situation. She responded in a matter-of-fact way, not a friendly way to to the trooper, but certainly not an uncivil way by any means. And she didn't sort of do that, oh, officer, oh, I'm so sorry, which really is what you have to do there. And she had out-of-state plates. And I think that um, this officer just decided that she wasn't being deferential enough. And he started making demands on her. And they weren't even legal demands. You know, he said, would you mind putting out your cigarette? And she said, why do I have to do that? And she asked about 16 questions, which he never answered. And instead, the thing just went from zero to 100 in a confrontation that ended up with her being shoved to the ground, just really manhandled. I mean, it's it's so disturbing to see the autopsy and see the scratches on her back and, and the leaf, the little piece of leaf stuck into her back. It's clear that he pushed her down and really brutalized her. And then he arrested her for assaulting him. And that's how she ended up in the jail with a felony charge. And they put her in solitary. I, I don't understand why that happened. 
It happened because she had a felony assault charge on a public officer. And once that happens, there's a flow chart at the jail. And, um, you know, they put your name at the top and they just sort of run these little arrows from, you know, what did you do and where does that go in the flow chart to which cell you should be in. So she was classified as what's called medium assaultive. And it's a little tiny jail. So there actually were several women in a less secure room who, some of who were um, sitting down their traffic tickets <laughs> and they were playing cards and telling jokes and just trying to get through this. That's where she should have been. But she was put in this, in this other cell, which that weekend just didn't have any other assaultive people. So it wasn't like they said, we're putting you in solitary. They put her in a room that just that weekend was solitary. She was all by herself for two and a half days. Some of our friends, you know, think she didn't commit suicide, as the police reported. You've looked into this pretty carefully. What have you concluded? I have looked into this very, very carefully. And, um, you know, I have to say that I find it really, really disturbing the way in order to make this kind of claim, some of the more far out people actually um, defaced an image of this black woman's body. You know, we talk about, talk about anonymous. They actually photoshopped her body, her face rather, to make her eyes look like they were open. I mean, it just goes on and on, these conspiracy theories. But, you know, the defacement of the image of a black body to me is just so beyond the pale. I looked into this. I looked into everything about it. The mark on her neck is impossible to make if somebody else makes it violently. The probability, the possibility that she could be killed by a conspiracy, because that, it would have taken a conspiracy of several people in that jail, including the administration, to kill this woman and leave absolutely no evidence of violence. It is so beyond the pale of probability or possibility. You know, and I have to say also that in order to even imagine this, you would have to imagine that the guards, half of whom, or maybe more than half of whom, were black and Latino themselves, were incredibly, incredibly brilliant, that they were brilliant, psychopathic conspirators. And I find it disturbing that 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 idea of racism, that, that that's what we should focus on when we think about racism. I mean, you know, racism is a series of institutions and they affect millions of people as we've looked at all these institutions that affected Sandy, the, the traffic stops, the marijuana bus, all of these things that affect so many millions of young black people. That's where we should be focusing, not on psychopathic conspiracy theories in a jail where there's no evidence. So what can we say about what happened to Sandra Bland? I think Sandra was killed, but not literally in that cell that day. I think that she died a thousand cuts in the same way that so many other people do, so many other black people do on a day-to-day -day basis. The the insults that they suffer through racist institutions. That's what we learn from her death. And I think that the other thing that we learn is that, you know, if we're thinking about black deaths, we have to think about something bigger, which is black lives. That when we say black lives matter, we're talking about 
black lives in their pain, in their imperfection, in their trouble. So we can say that black lives matter, and hers was one of them. Debbie Nathan, read her cover story in The Nation magazine. Debbie, thanks for this report, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.